2: On a tiny speck, suspended amid the great black abyss of space, exists everything we have ever known, and possibly will ever know. Every person that has ever existed, every thought that has ever been thought, every love affair, every war, every lie, every kiss, every piece of music that has ever been written, and every glimmer of a future not yet realized, all of it. That tiny speck is, of course, Earth, home to us and everything that makes us us. But it's estimated there are roughly 10,000 stars in the universe for every grain of sand found on our planet. Itself, only one of over a billion planets in our galaxy. That galaxy, the Milky Way, is one of two trillion galaxies in the observable universe, An incomprehensibly vast space, 93 billion light years from end to end. The rest of the universe that we can't yet see could be anything from 150 to 250 billion trillion times bigger. In 1981, Alan Guth of Stanford University proposed the theory of cosmic inflation. The idea that the nascent universe passed through a phase of exponential expansion and has been continually expanding ever since. Is the universe vast but finite with opposite ends? Or is it something else, some as yet unquantifiable non-Euclidean space with wraparound properties like a game of Pac-Man where travelling so far in one direction eventually brings you back to where you started? Or is the entire universe as we know it, just the inside of a black hole? existing inside a whole other universe or inside an infinite number of other possible universes for that matter is the universe itself infinite in space never ending no matter what direction we travel through it be that spatially or temporally we simply don't know but from astronomers to philosophers to stargazing stoners all of us grapple with this dizzying conundrum Either way, for most people, far more than wanting to know what shape our universe actually takes, what we really want to know is are we alone in it? You're listening to Unexplained and I'm Richard McLean Smith. It's the 27th of October, 1954. The early autumnal sun is sweet and crisp where it turns the Tuscan streets gold. Shouts of laughter and good-natured talk fill the streets of Florence, Italy, as crowds of people head towards the Stadio Comunale, later to be known as the Stadio Artemio Franchi. Tens of thousands of fans turn out in their droves to watch a highly anticipated local derby, a match between home team Fiorentina and their rivals Pistoiesi. There's much excitement from even the Pistoiese fans at the sight of Ardico Magnini, defender, local legend and World Cup Star of the Summer as he runs out onto the pitch. He would become famous in 1956 for a photograph depicting him flying through the air and appearing to roundhouse kick a ball, his mouth open in a defiant shout. But for now, he is taking it easy. It's a friendly match, and the atmosphere is jovial. The first half is much like any football match. People drinking and cheering and swearing animatedly at the ref whenever the moment called for it. Half-time arrives, and the teams huddled together in intense conversation, patting each other on the back. Fifteen minutes later, the crowd roared as one as the players fanned out onto the pitch again. It was about 20 minutes past two, barely a few minutes into the second half, when a sudden eerie silence fell across the whole stadium, like someone had suddenly turned down the volume on a radio. From the middle of the pitch, Ardico Magnini looked up at the crowd, who, as though the radio had been suddenly cranked on again, let out a deafening roar and pointed to the sky. Magnini followed the many outstretched arms to where they were pointing and his eyes grew wide in astonishment. Up above him, a large silver egg-like shape was moving slowly, 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 as Magnini would later describe it, right over the stadium. All the players stopped to marvel at the bizarre sight. Moments later, there was a bright sparkling in the air underneath the object as a strange silver glitter began to fall from the sky. In the aftermath of the peculiar event at the football match, the silver glitter would remain a common denominator in the many accounts of the event given by numerous spectators. Some described it as being like silvery filaments descending from the heavens, while others noted how the sky itself seemed to shimmer and glow with random flashes of light. Roberto Pinotti, the president of Italy's National UFO Center, recalled the light sticky substance falling from above. In English they call this angel hair, he said. The only problem was after a short period of time, it disintegrated. But I remember, in broad daylight, seeing the roofs of the houses in Florence covered in this white substance for one hour, and like snow, it just evaporated. Gigi Boni, a lifelong Fiorentina fan, remembered many objects in the sky that day, describing them as being silver and shaped like Cuban cigars, and moving unusually fast, then stopped over the pitch before dropping the shimmering silver rain. In the official match record, it stated that the match was suspended due to something in the sky. Others, including another player, Romolo Tucci, reported seeing multiple smaller crafts. In those years, he said, everybody was talking UFOs and we had the experience, we saw them directly, for real. Tucci was not wrong. In those years, the 1950s, everyone really was talking about aliens, as the governments of the US and the Soviet Union invested increasingly heavily in space exploration in an effort to prove to the world who was the true superpower. Talk of space probes and satellites quickly entered the mainstream, In October 1951, the Soviet engineer Mikhail Tokonurov published an article titled Flight to the Moon. In it, he described in evocative detail the hypothetical spaceships of the future, laid out the science needed to create them, and ended his article with what, to many imaginative impressionable minds, must have read as a call to arms. We do not have long to wait we can assume that the bold dream will be realised within the next 10 to 15 years. Not to be outdone, over the next three years, the United States Colliers magazine responded with a series of seven articles titled, Man Will Conquer Space Soon. Then, in 1955, Disney screened an animated episode of their television series, Disneyland, titled Man in Space. It reached an audience of 40 million people and was even nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Short. The space race had not yet begun, but the competitors were well and truly at the start line, limbering up and poised for the starting pistol. It's no wonder then that UFO sightings during the early 1950s skyrocketed with reports soon numbering in their thousands across the world. For the people of Italy, it was factory worker Bruno Facchini, who was perhaps more responsible than anyone for kicking off that country's own wave of bizarre aerial sightings that would eventually peak in 1954 on that strange summer afternoon in Florence. It was the evening of April 24th, 1950, a little after 10pm, on the outskirts of the city of Tridate, just north of Milan. All day long, the city had been shrouded by thick dark clouds and pummeled with rain. Having waited for the latest downpour to stop, Facchini stepped hurriedly from his back door, leaving his wife and young son inside as he made a dash for their outdoor toilet located at the back of the garden. After relieving himself, Fakini stepped outside and lit a cigarette, savouring the musty smell of wet grass and warm rain on concrete as he made his way back down the garden path toward the house. It was then that he noticed the strange flashes of light in the dark sky above. Naturally at first he thought it was simply lightning, but the storm clouds had since moved off, and in any case, when he looked again, he saw the light was in fact coming from a field opposite his house. So Fakini went to investigate. As he made his way over, the lights continued to flash. He began to wonder if maybe it was the electrical spark of a broken power line, damaged by the storm. But as he drew nearer, The flashing light suddenly stopped. He stood for a moment in the silence, and scanned the field ahead, but saw nothing unusual. Perhaps it was just light, reflecting off some glass, he thought, feeling a little stupid. He felt cold suddenly, and pulled his light jacket a little tighter together. Turning back to his house, he was just about to set off for home, when he sensed the light flashing again from out of the corner of his eye. And sure enough, there it was, just where he'd seen it before. Once again, he set off toward it, convinced it probably was a faulty power line. He was just thinking about calling it in to the police when he froze suddenly. There, about 200 yards ahead of him, as if it had just suddenly materialised then and there, was what he later described as a huge, dark shape, like a ball, but with a flattened top. He judged the object to be about 30 feet high and 20 feet across, and as he drew closer, he saw it was illuminated by an unearthly greenish glow, and then he saw ladders stretching down from the underside of it, and at the bottom of one of them, a man. Or at least, he thought it was a man. The human-like figure was wearing some kind of thick suit and a large bulbous helmet with a black sheeny visor down over the eyes. Though Fakini didn't quite know how to describe it at the time, he would later compare it to the suits worn by the Apollo astronauts of the 1960s more than a decade later. As flashes of light continued to come from the direction of the object, Bruno Facchini figured the man in the suit was welding something, perhaps carrying out repairs of some kind. Then a secondary glow emerged from the peculiar craft, this time coming from inside it, shining out of some kind of hatch. Once the light subsided, Fuchini claimed he was briefly able to glimpse inside the craft, where he apparently saw another ladder leading to a higher level, as well as an odd array of items that he described as being like bottles connected together in rows, with gauges and tubes between them. Stepping in for a closer look, he then claimed he could see two other figures moving clumsily around inside. Years later, Fakini would again reference the Apollo astronauts to describe the manner in which the figures moved – languid and heavy, as if floating in space. He continued staring on as the figures apparently passed pipe-like objects between them and occasionally sent more metallic sparks shooting out all around them. Steadily, he noticed more and more strange things. What he was seeing was like a Polaroid picture slowly emerging in front of him. He saw dials and cylinders along the interior walls and heard a distinct and constant buzzing sound, reminiscent of a swarm of bees. And all about him, the air grew strangely warmer. Ficchini wondered if the men were from the military, operating a brand new, state-of-the-art aircraft, and had been forced to make an emergency landing due to the storm. It was only then that he realised the men were speaking, but not in any language that he had ever heard before. The bizarre, guttural utterances they were apparently making caused him to realise The men weren't men at all, at least not of the human kind. Just then, one of the figures on board the craft gestured in his direction. Fear sliced through him. He stumbled backwards, suddenly realising just how exposed he was out there, and with that he turned and ran. Sprinting for his house across the field, Fikini saw in his peripheral vision one of the figures point something in his direction. A sudden bright beam of light blinded him, and a burning pain split him in two. He felt as though he'd been cut in half across his torso. Looking down, he saw much to his relief that his body was still intact, but he could no longer move. Then he collapsed heavily, to the ground. In the grip of utter panic, Fikini claimed to have then watched the figures, convinced they would chase after him, only for them to continue doing what they were doing, as though they had merely meant to keep him away. Fikini watched wide-eyed, trying to keep his face out of the dirt, as the figures finished up, and returned inside the craft. Then the greenish light, that had been emanating from the vessel throughout, began to dim as the hatch door was slowly closed. A moment later, with only the half-light of night, Fakini watched on as that peculiar buzzing sound grew louder in intensity, until he heard a great whoosh and felt the rush of the aircraft as it shot into the sky and disappeared. Bruno Facchini claimed to have remained on the ground for some time until he felt it was safe enough to return home. After a sleepless night, the next morning he returned to the site. There he noticed four distinct circular impressions and noted that the grass had considerable burn markings. Pieces of scrap and melted metal littered the ground all confirming to him that whatever he had seen had genuinely happened. At least, that's what he reported to the police. Despite their scepticism, some officers were sent out to investigate the site and collected pieces of the strange metal for analysis. The results were mostly inconclusive, but did conclude the fragments were comprised of some kind of heat-resistant and anti-friction material. They also stated that the metal would, quote, be ideal in spaceflight to face the burn-up as a craft entered the Earth's atmosphere. A secondary examination found that the metal was comprised of mostly bronze with traces of lead. Fakini later said that a few days after his apparent encounter he was struck down with excruciating back pain. When he turned to get a look at his back in the mirror, he found there a huge black mark, darker than any bruise he'd ever had, stretched across the entirety of it. By the October of 1954, UFO sightings were being reported throughout Europe in unprecedented numbers. In September 1954, in Nord, just south of Lille in northern France, train station guard Marius de Vild contacted local police with an incredible story of his own. It was around 10.30pm on the night of September 10th, as Devild was preparing for bed, that his dog began barking manically. Believing that something outside was distressing her, he grabbed a torch and promptly headed out to investigate. In the silence of the evening, he walked a few steps along the rail tracks when a sudden noise caused him to spin around. There, caught in the beam of his flashlight, as he later told police, were two humanoid figures, each no more than a metre in height, standing beside some kind of craft. When he pointed the light at their heads, it apparently reflected bright and silver, as if the figures were wearing mirrored helmets. Not unlike Fakini's experience, Devilde is then said to have suddenly found himself in the grip of an immobilising beam of light, Unable to move, he simply watched as the figures then stepped into the craft. Moments later, it shot off into the sky, rippling with effervescent colour as it went. Officers dispatched to investigate first interviewed Deville's wife and neighbour to see if they could corroborate his story, but neither had seen anything. Unimpressed, the officers nonetheless agreed to follow de Wilde out to the spot where he'd apparently seen the strange craft. When they got there, they found a six-meter depression in the ground. De Wilde then cried out suddenly and bent over, seemingly in the grip of an intense pain. In that moment, the torch he'd been carrying in his hand seemed also to suddenly stop working. In one report, it was said that three days later De Wilde's dog died, while De Wilde developed respiratory problems that he couldn't shake. Three cows were later found dead in a neighbouring field, all apparently completely drained of blood. After De Wilde's apparent inexplicable encounter A number of similar sightings were reported throughout France over the next few weeks. From Brie to Bergerac and Clermont-Ferrand came bizarre tales of floating crafts, strange lights and the sudden onset of paralysis inflicting those who reported the sightings. On October 11th, 1954, Henri Gaulois and Louis Vigneron were driving together in Assier in the south of France when they suddenly felt as though they'd been struck by something, sending an electric shock through their bodies. Both expected the car to spin wildly out of control, but instead it came to a swift halt as though someone had simply switched it off. As the pair remained paralysed, the men claimed they then spotted what appeared to be some kind of machine-like object in the distance, being approached by three strange creatures. The creatures then disappeared inside the object, and moments later it rose into the air, gained rapid speed, and vanished. With the peculiar craft gone, the car came back to life, and their movement returned. Two nights later, a near-identical event is said to have happened to a Dr Henri Robert in Balliolay, 700 kilometres to the north. Whether it's the rumour that a UFO followed the flight path of a plane from New York to London in June of 1954, or it's the sighting of a strange green ball over Madagascar in August of 1954, that year certainly seemed to be a hotbed of apparent UFO-related incidents. It was even said that an unscheduled dentist trip for America's President Eisenhower in February of 1954 was in fact a meeting with multiple alien species. Despite the flurry of supposed UFO sightings in 1954, not everyone was so easily persuaded that something truly otherworldly was taking place. Scientists suggested that many of the UFO sightings in Italy and France of that year were caused by temperature inversions, which occur when a layer of hot air moves over a layer of cool air, which can bend light rays so that it seems an object on the ground is in fact hovering somewhere above in the sky. Others advised that the silver glitter, or angel hair, as seen at the Italian football match, was likely due to migrating spiders, who send long, whitish strands of their silk into the air to travel by wind. Roberto Pinotti, the president of Italy's National UFO Center, disagreed, however stating that the migrating spiders theory is an old and stupid hypothesis. According to Panotti, the chemical analysis of the angel hair samples was nothing like spider silk, which is a protein, an organic compound containing nitrogen, calcium, hydrogen and oxygen. On the day the apparent UFOs stopped his team's football match, Giorgio Battini, A journalist at the Florentine newspaper La Nazione gathered several samples of the angel hair and took them to the Institute of Chemical Analysis at the University of Florence. After thorough testing, the lab concluded it actually contained the elements boron, silicon, calcium and magnesium. Not radioactive, but not spider silk either. In fact, not like anything they'd ever seen before. Sadly, the samples were destroyed by the testing process, and their true provenance remains a mystery to this day. This episode was written by Ella MacLeod and Richard McLean-Smith. Unexplained is an AV Club Productions podcast created by Richard McLean-Smith. All other elements of the podcast, including the music, are also produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Unexplained, the book and audiobook, with stories never before featured on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones and other bookstores. Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can find out more at unexplainedpodcast.com and reach us online through Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.